So I thought I'd share some reflections on this um, this practice of meditation. Uh, so I'll, I'll talk for 30, 40 minutes or so, and then we'll have some time for questions and a little bit of discussion at the end. Uh, so what, what we do here uh, in a space like this where we all come together and sit quietly with, with our eyes closed uh, is is one aspect of the the path of meditation that comes out of the Buddhist tradition, the path of practice. It's a comprehensive way of life, and the uh, the silent meditation kind of gets the most press. Um, but it's important to recognize that uh, it's an eightfold path, and uh, meditation is one component of it. So. There are teachings on uh, how we look at things, our perspective on life, uh, the kinds of intentions and orientations we bring to everything we do, not just meditation. Uh, there are teachings on how we speak to one another, the kind of work that we do, uh, the way that we make effort and approach things. So it's a whole integrated system. Uh, and if you're not familiar with uh, these other aspects of the teachings, I uh, strongly encourage you to ask teachers about them and find books and listen to talks on Dharma Seed or uh, the websites of myself or other teachers who come here so that you can learn more about the, uh, uh, the fullness of this path. <clears throat> Tonight I wanted to speak about this particular activity of meditation uh, which can get pretty serious sometimes, contemplative practice and meditation. It looks pretty serious. Sitting still with your spine upright and your eyes closed and following the breath one moment at a time, cultivating insight and samadhi, concentration. Uh, you know, it's understandable that we get serious about this stuff. Uh, I think there's a lot to be serious about in life. I'm a pretty serious person. Um, you know, we get serious about uh, our personalities or the various things that are happening in our lives, relationships, work, financial stuff, and things we need to deal with. Uh, we can get pretty serious about the particular his historical moment we're living in whether it's politically or environmentally or socially. You know, there's a lot going on to uh, take seriously with real consequences on our lives and the lives of um, many beings, human and non-human. Uh, and then there's existential realities. Sickness, loss, getting old, dying. So there's a lot to be serious about in life. Um, and sometimes we actually emphasize this in spiritual practice. In the Buddhist path, it's what's called samvega, which translates to something like urgency, sometimes translated as spiritual urgency. And it's meant to wake us up from... Uh, the way we can just kind of sleepwalk through life. One day after another, just doing this, just doing that, and all of a sudden you turn around, and what have I been doing for the last 20 years? So the, the seriousness is, is meant to kind of 
shock us into being more alert. But sometimes it can get out of balance. We get too serious. We get too focused on meditating in the right way. And when we think of meditation practice as uh, a particular system or some technique, uh, it becomes a project to complete. And then all of our uh, usual attitudes and worldly approaches to things uh, kind of rush in. So all of the ways we relate to work, for example, start to take over in our meditation practice of achieving and accomplishing a very kind of goal-oriented, get to the finish line, uh, or our attitudes of perfectionism, doing it right, right, wanting to be the best, or to perform, to kind of uh, excel and be the best at it, or that we're being evaluated or judged somehow, or comparing ourselves to others, how am I doing? All of these attitudes can find their way in when we take it too seriously. Do you know this? Is this sounding familiar? Okay. How's that work? You know? Is that conducive to this kind of relaxed, curious, friendly attitude I was talking about? Not so much, right? It makes it pretty stressful. Meditation can be stressful, right? Talk about stress reduction. How many people felt like relieved when they heard the sound of that bell after 40 (laughs) minutes? This is supposed to be your stress reduction, not stress induction. So what's going on here? There's an essential quality in all contemplative practice and spiritual practice that's often missing, which is the quality of lightness and joy. It's a kind of enthusiasm. It's a sense of, wow, I want to do this. This is great. Oftentimes we feel that when we first start. When we first learn about meditation, we pick up that first book or we hear that first Dharma talk or someone tells us something the first time and something in us lights up and go, wow, this is, this is cool. This is interesting. There's something here for me. I want to check this out. But then very quickly, the, the sort of project mentality takes over and it gets very heavy and dark and we're not good enough and it's not working and why and everything else that follows. I had a, a Zen teacher um, in the, the first couple years of my practice uh, who used to say he would talk about something in life, tell a story, and then he would always end by saying, life, very serious joke, <laughs> and laugh. Very serious joke. One of, the, one of the signs of wisdom, one of the signs of the fruit of meditation practice is a kind of a humor, a sense of humor about things. We don't take ourselves too seriously. We don't take life too seriously. We see it so clearly that we have a wider perspective on things. We still care, but the heart can be light and free. So a key aspect to this spirit of enthusiasm that I want to talk about tonight is playfulness. And when you're doing it right, to use that language of right, (laughs) meditation has a quality of play in it. So I want to talk a little bit about play and how it relates to meditation. 
with the hope that you leave here with a little bit more of a sense of lightness in your meditation practice. So what are some of the qualities or aspects of play? Well, first and foremost, play is voluntary. No one's forcing you to play, right? If they're forcing you, it's not play. So this is the opposite of our habitual attitudes towards work, the the kind of sense of I have to, I should, the obligation. And so notice, do those attitudes creep into your meditation practice, that we have to do it or that we should do it, right? And what would it be like to remember that no one's forcing you to meditate? You came here of your own will tonight. You know, if you have a daily practice at home or maybe a weekly practice, you meditate on the weekend, no one's forcing you to do it, right? You're choosing to do it. But are we connected to that sense of it being voluntary? Or is that being kind of controlled or dominated or sort of overlaid with this sense of obligation that we lose touch with the sense of willingness We are choosing this. And why? Why are we choosing to meditate? This is a very important question for each of us to stay connected to. There's something important to us in life that's calling us to this very strange activity of sitting still and doing nothing. So why? You know, look inside, try to remember what it is that's important to you that's leading you to choose to meditate and stay connected to that sense of, I want to do this. This is voluntary. So the next quality of play is that uh, it's not only voluntary, but we want to do it. We're attracted to it. It's inherently attractive. We're drawn to play, to play with a dog or a, or a kid or a friend, because it's fun. We enjoy it. There's a, a mixture of qualities in play, all of the qualities that, that we'll, I'll talk about tonight, that feel really good to us. We feel alive and engaged and uh, in the moment, and that's very... Uh, enlivening for our organism on a physiological level. That's attractive. That's the, the, the experience of play. And so this is also really, really important in meditation practice, to have a sense of being inherently attracted to it, to want to do it. Not because we should, because we have to, but because it feels good, because there's some there's something about it that's enjoyable. So there's a lot of different things that can be enjoyable about meditation, a lot of different things that can draw us to it, that can that can interest interest us in it. And it's I recommend, I encourage you to find for yourself what is it that draws you to it. What is it that's enjoyable for you in it? For some, it's the sense of curiosity and exploration, like discovering what this mind is, discovering what the human body is. Not, not this 
lump of meat and skin that you see, but from the inside, the experience, the warmth and the tingling and the pulsing and the hardness and the flushes of energy, the sense of space, it can feel small or big. It's very, very fascinating to explore what it is to be alive from the inside. And that can draw us a sense of discovery. One of the one of the words in Pali that's used to describe the path of practice and the teachings, the Dharma, is this word ehipasiko. Ehipasiko, which means something like, hey, check it out. Seriously, come and see. It's that sense of check this out. It's inviting. It has a quality of being inviting. Like somebody found something really cool and they said, oh my God, you've got to see this. It's so cool. So it's inherently attractive. It draws us to it. Finding that quality for yourself. Uh, The Zen master and uh, poet and uh, peace activist Thich Nhat Hanh talks a lot about smiling in meditation practice. And if you look at at Buddha statues, you'll notice most of them have this very subtle smile. It's not like, hey, this is great. It's not like that. It's It's this very quiet enjoyment. It's like a subtle peace. And so it can be interesting to sometimes in your meditation practice itself, oftentimes if you, if you look at people when they're meditating, it looks very serious. Sometimes you can see, you see people's brow get furrowed. They're trying to concentrate too hard. So sometimes just try, just try smiling a little bit. Just a little half smile on your face. It actually changes your physiology. It can bring a sense of brightness or being uplifted. So finding the aspects of meditation that are inherently attractive and enjoyable. Learning to pick up the, uh, the, the pleasure in meditation. And there is pleasure. If you don't experience it, I can assure you there is pleasure. But we have to learn to find it. It's not always going to come and kind of knock you over the head pleasure. It's, it's often more subtle than like ice cream or chocolate or a hot tub, or you know something that's like really strong sense pleasure that you feel very clearly. But what was it like when we started and I pointed out that you didn't have to do anything, that there was nobody who needed anything from you? Didn't that feel good? Right? It's just that sense of, oh, thank God. Nobody needs anything. The phone's not ringing. I don't have to do the dishes. I don't have to check the email. Right? I don't have to take the dog out. So there's a simplicity, and there's a kind of relief in that. There's a sense of pleasure in the simplicity of not doing. We need to learn to notice that. There's a kind of pleasure in stillness. We usually find pleasure in activity, in movement. But there's a kind of pleasure that comes from stillness. We have to learn to notice that, to appreciate it. If the mind isn't still, which it's not most of the time in meditation, the body's still, and we can learn to pick up on that. The breath can be soothing. We like rhythm. Human beings like rhythm. The heart, 
walking. Breathing is rhythmic. So I'm just kind of feeling relaxed, just doing this movement with my hand. It's very nice, you know. So can you just, just tuning in to the, to the rhythm of the breath. We get so focused on feeling the breath, getting the mind focused. We forget to just notice like in and out and swelling and, and, and releasing. That rhythm itself can be very soothing and calming. Sometimes a sense of openness or space is pleasant in meditation. So you need to find, you know, where do you find that thread of something that's inherently attractive and enjoyable in your practice? Oftentimes the pleasure in meditation comes through an absence rather than a presence. So rather than some nice, subtle, tingly sensation that kind of shimmers through our body. It's oh, it's so nice, right? That's the presence of something. It's the experience of something. But there's a pleasure that comes from something not being there. Ah. <laughs> right? That was pretty unpleasant. And when it stopped, how was that? Nice, right? I talked to my first meditation teacher about enlightenment. Menindraji, what's it like? You've experienced it, right? What's it like? You've got to tell me. He said it's like uh, having a really good night's sleep. And you wake up in the morning. Someone says, how did you sleep? And you say, oh, I slept so well. Really? How do you know? What was it like? I, I don't remember. I don't know. I was asleep. But I, but I know now because I feel so good and refreshed. It's like that. There's no experience there. It's not a thing. But there's this deep quality of rest and stillness that you know from the effect. Afterwards, the mind and body are totally refreshed. I was talking to Joseph Goldstein, one of my other teachers, some of many of you know who he is, about enlightenment. Joseph uses the analogy. It's like the sound of like a refrigerator in your kitchen that's going in the background. You don't really notice it, but then it stops, and it's like, ah. Oh. So something stopping, the absence of something. So the absence of stimulation. We're being constantly stimulated by everything around us in life. Traffic, people, signs, notifications on our phone, emails, Facebook, Twitter, people, sights, sounds, smells, coffee, food, stimulation, constantly, constantly, coming, coming, coming. How is it to close your eyes, to unplug? The absence of stimulation can be very, very enjoyable, but we have to notice it. The absence of pressure, pushing, 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 other people pushing, you pushing inside, just, just even the slightest reduction in that pressure, that pushing, that drive. Oh, that's so nice. 
But we have to notice it. We have to notice that shift. So learning to take, learning to take pleasure in what's not here, rather than always looking for something to fill us up, which never really ends, as we know. And eventually, as our skill in meditation practice grows, we learn to enjoy even the difficulties, even the things that are unpleasant or hard, when you can really work with them, when you, when you learn how to be with sadness or anger or fear, there's a quality of joyfulness that comes through, through the sincerity and the wholeheartedness of our presence. It's no longer the content of our experience that matters, but the way that we're relating to it. When we learn how to be relaxed, curious, and friendly with everything, then that very orientation to experience becomes its own source of pleasure. And, we, and it doesn't matter what we're experiencing because we're able to relate to it skillfully. So play is inherently attractive. It's fun. It's enjoyable. Meditation has aspects of it that are inherently attractive, that are fun and enjoyable and pleasant, but we need to learn to notice them, to pick up on them. Another central quality of of playing is that there's no purpose. Play doesn't have a purpose. We just play to play. If you play music, right? What's the goal of music? It's just to play. It's just to enjoy the process of it. It's done for its own sake. It's not goal-oriented. We're not trying to achieve something or arrive at some, some final place. And again, you know, as adults, we get so focused on being functional. Everything has to have a purpose and an aim and a goal, and we're going to get there, and it's going to work, going to produce results. It's got to have value. You're going to get a reward for it. The, the promise of fulfillment and satisfaction is always out there. You know, with a good job, with a good relationship, or having enough money, or the right living place, or being able to take the vacation, or get the next thing, or to be successful, or to have status, or a certain role. But does it ever really arrive? Are we ever really at that place where we feel fulfilled and satisfied by all of those things that, that promise it, that offer it. So when our, our energies and our daily activities and our work all center around producing, performing, getting the results, this, this functional orientation, when there's not that sense of um, play, of being engaged and enjoying and being creative uh, leaves us feeling pretty empty, pretty exhausted, right? Come home at the end of the day of work, of working, of doing and achieving and accomplishing and getting there, we're spent, right? And then what? Right? Flip something on, this kind of synthetic entertainment kind of produced um, synthetic play, 
something to, to play for us to try to come out of the haze, to try to fill that, that space inside. So meditation practice is a very different orientation. It's this orientation of not so much having a goal or a purpose. Um, Longpur Liam, who's the abbot of a very famous monastery in uh, Thailand where Ajahn Chah, a monastery Ajahn Chah uh, founded, um, he says, practice for the sake of practice. It's very, very Zen orientation. So somebody asked um, asked Ajahn Chah, this, the founder of this monastery, he was one of the great meditation masters of the last century. They, they, they came to his monastery and they said, why do you meditate? Why do you meditate? And he said to the, uh, to the person asking the question, he said, why do you eat? Why do you sleep? Why do you bathe? That's why I meditate. Do we sleep for a reason? It's just natural. It's just part of being human. We eat for a reason, yeah, to satisfy our hunger. And we meditate in the same way. It's just part of what we do as human beings to kind of keep sane. (laughs) You know, to deal with this craziness of being alive. Suzuki Roshi, the uh, great Soto Zen master, founded San Francisco Zen Center and all the sort of satellite school uh, uh, monasteries that are associated with it. He talked about practicing without a gaining idea. He said that if you're feeling frustrated in your meditation practice, this is a sign that you have some gaining idea. In order to be frustrated, we have to have some goal in mind that we're not getting to. So it's feedback. It's important feedback to know, oh, I'm, I'm getting, I have the wrong approach here, trying to get something, trying to get somewhere. So meditation practice isn't about getting somewhere or getting something. It's about understanding where you already are and what you already have by stopping, slowing down, and showing up. So the purpose isn't to get anywhere. It's just to be here. So the sense of wholeheartedness. When we play, we're we're, we're not trying to get somewhere, but we're fully there, just doing it for its own sake. It's the the same orientation in meditation, to just be fully here, just doing it for its own sake, to just explore, to just play. To just see, what's this like to be here, to breathe? What's it like to be frustrated or angry? What's that experience like? How does it it show up in my body? What are the thoughts? How do I relate to it? So it's very important to sort of start to notice this tendency we have as humans to, to, to seek a conclusion, to get to the end, to have a goal. A play is nonlinear. It's not going to some goal, right? It's a, just a process of meeting what's happening and responding and opening to it in the moment. That's meditation practice. It's nonlinear. It's just meeting what's happening, responding to it, learning how to be with it. 
Most things in life that are important don't come to a conclusion. Life is not life is unfinished. You know. We don't finish things. There's no, you know, tidy everything up in a bow and it's done in life. There's always an uncertain quality. Never really knowing what's going to happen next. And play is like that. It's open-ended. It doesn't come to a fixed conclusion. We don't know what's going to happen. And so we bring that, that understanding to meditation. We bring that orientation of not having a goal, of being open-ended, of not looking for a fixed conclusion. I've been meditating for 20 years. I still consider myself a beginner when I'm practicing right. When I think I know something, then I'm not, I'm not really practicing well. When we come to meditation practice and think that we're going to like get it all figured out and then be done... Well, good luck. <laughs> you know, let me know how it goes. It's a process. It's just a process of learning. And so just to have the sense of this open-ended sense of just to just keep learning, to just keep exploring, to not seek that, that end point. Because it's not an end point in the way that we think about it. The end point is always here. This brings us. This brings me to the next aspect of play, which is that it's outside of time. As is meditation practice. And so when we're playing, we're not thinking about time. We're not thinking about how much longer, you know, when's it going to be done. We're not checking the clock. It releases us from the boundaries and the pressure of time. And trying to get to the end, trying to be as efficient as possible. You ever try to play efficiently? No. <laughs> it's a different axis. We become absorbed fully in the activity and we lose track of time. This is a key part of meditation practice. So another one of the words that's used to describe the Dharma is akaliko in Pali. Akaliko, which means timeless outside of time. Enlightenment is timeless. What does that mean? Well, if it were something that existed in time, if it were something that you could get to in the future that's not already here, then it would follow the same laws of everything else on this planet. Which is that it passes away. Everything that comes into being disintegrates and dissolves, right? So if it could if it if it could if it's in the future, then that means it's gonna eventually pass away. So it's outside of time. It's what's called the unborn. It doesn't come into being, so it can't pass away. What's that? We can't understand it with our personality, with our, with our rational mind. 
It doesn't follow those, those rules. It's something that we experience in the here and now, always present. So meditation practice brings us into this other domain of existence. Where is time? Where is the past? Does it exist? How do we experience the past? As a thought, as a memory, now. Where is the future? Where is tomorrow? Where is the end of this talk? Can you show me? It exists only as a thought in the present moment in our minds. Where is you as a child, 10 years old? Where does that exist? Here, right? There's only ever now. It's timeless. There's always ever, there's only ever been now. And there will only ever be just this moment. And that's, that's the space we all know as kids when we play, right? And that's the space of meditation. We just enter deeply, fully, and completely into the now, into this moment. We let go of the past and the future. We let go of time. We let go of space. There's no time and space. There's just what's happening. Fully present, fully alert. Play also is outside of self. It takes us out of self-consciousness, which is a huge part of meditation practice. When we're playing, we're not preoccupied with how we look, right? You can get goofy when you play because you're not thinking about yourself. You're not preoccupied with, how am I playing? <laughs> am I a good player? Am I playing right? You know, am I performing well in this play? You know, am I playing with the dog correctly? You just play. You just have fun. You let go of the sense of self. You let go of that sense of how am I being seen or do I look okay or will others like me, right? It's outside of self-consciousness. And the same with meditation. It's outside of self. We're not doing it to look good. Maybe we are, but then we have to look at that. We're not, we're learning how to not be caught up in how well we're doing or comparing ourselves to others. Just do it. Just show up. Just be with your experience. These kinds of energies of comparing ourselves or evaluating or, you know, do I look okay or am I doing it right? These get in the way of meditation practice. One of the most, uh, insidious and pervasive uh, obstacles on the path of spiritual development is what's called self-view, which is the idea of a person practicing meditation, that I am going to progress spiritually and become this wonderful person that everyone will finally love and see how great I am. Right? Am I the only one who does that? <laughs> okay, good, just checking. Right? 
very deep moment on one of my first long meditation retreats where I was realized that uh, I had been practicing meditation as driven energy it was, it, that serves us. You know, this, the kind of focus and drive in meditation can be very uh, productive to a certain point. But I realized I was, you know, trying so hard to be the best meditator and to realize enlightenment so that my mother would, you know, love and accept me. Like, look, Mom, you know, look how great, you know. Got enlightened. Good enough? (laughs) There's a wonderful story in the suttas about one of the Buddha's chief disciples, Sariputta, supposed to be one of those foremost in wisdom. And Sariputta's mom never, wouldn't have any of it. Whenever the monks would come around, she was she was always, you know, saying things, you know, those lazy monks, they don't work, and they're just begging for food. <laughs> so apparently she's on her deathbed, and uh, she has a vision. One of the gods comes down and, uh, and you know, not remembering all the details of, the, of the, the legend, but, you know, basically says, like, you know, you should, you should tell your son to come and, you know, <laughs> chants and blessings, he's a, he's, a, he's a realized being. This is a really good thing, you know. And so Sariputta comes, and she finally kind of recognizes that he did something good with his life. <laughs> anyway, I'm Jewish, so I have a Jewish mom. <laughs> she loves me very much, and she's very proud of what I've done with my life. I'm very happy to say. I know that. We have a wonderful relationship. <laughs> She went into conniptions when I became Buddhist, but uh, we've learned to understand one another. So meditation is outside of self. The ways our personality get wrapped up in our motivations and how we're perceived or whether we're accepted or not. We just do it. We just, just to let go of those, uh, those energies. And they creep in. That's, you know, that's part of the practice is to keep noticing when I'm doing it. So we don't meditate. This is one of the things that we learn to understand. We get in the way of meditation. The mind meditates. Certain qualities and energies in the mind that meditate. Mindfulness, wisdom, energy, confidence, and concentration. Those are the energies in the mind that actually do the meditating. Are you concentration? Is that you? Are you mindfulness? Is that yours? Energy? Is that, is that you? No. These are just, they're just different kind of factors that come and go in the mind that we can actually cultivate and strengthen. We can make them really strong. We can make mindfulness really strong. We can make confidence and aspiration really, really strong. And then those qualities meditate. So our job is to get out of the way and just learn how to turn the volume up on those qualities and how to turn the volume down on the things that get in the way, like apathy and restlessness and doubt and uh, you know greed and craving and hatred, all the hindrances. Just which ones do we want to strengthen so that those meditate? Don't worry so much about what you're doing. Just keep showing up. So play is also improvised, it's spontaneous, it's not planned. It's a creative process that draws on our imagination. There can be some rules and some structure, but within that there's a lot of freedom and exploration. 
And meditation practice is the same way. There's a lot of creativity, a lot of exploration and imagination that comes into meditation practice. There's a lot of analogies in the in the early texts that illustrate this, where the Buddha talks about talks about staying with the breath as like holding a bird. If you hold it too tightly, you're going to crush it. But if you don't hold it firmly enough, it's going to fly away. So there's that sense of just just getting it right, getting a feel for it. So when you meditate and you're trying to follow your breath and think about how do I do this, you know, think of that analogy, like holding a bird, firm and steady but gentle. right? And then that's creative, that's playful, how to be with the breath like you're holding a bird. right? So these qualities are shared in play and meditation of being uh, creative, responsive, flexible. Play is interactive. We're always responding and interacting, if not with another human being, then with our environment. And meditation is the same way. It's responsive and interactive. We're always meeting experience, thoughts, emotions, intentions, energies, memories, sensations, meeting them and learning, how do I find my balance here? You know, How do I respond to this in a way that's useful? So all forms of uh, higher forms of life, animals play. It's uh, one of the ways that we learn. So predators play at hunting and prey chase each other. You know, so as kids, when we play, we're exploring our bodies. We're exploring what it's like to be in charge, what it's like to not be in charge, what it's like to be angry or what it's like to be in love. We play with all of these emotions and roles so that we learn about them. It's a kind of social education, this engagement and cooperation. And the challenges that we experience in play encourage our imagination and endurance and creativity, our our willingness to take risks. And in the same way, the challenges that we face in meditation, the ways that we engage and respond to things strengthen qualities in us. They bring out certain aspects that might not be developed otherwise. So the spontaneity and uh, creativity of meditation is always responding to what's happening in the moment, just fully sensing it. That's mindfulness, really being right there and learning how to meet whatever comes up, learning how to meet it with balance, how to bring the fullness of your presence to each moment of experience and how to stay kind and patient and curious no matter what's happening so that even when very difficult things come up, grief or loss, we've learned how to play. We've learned how to stay nimble and flexible and light in the face of those experiences so we have something to rest in that's our, our way of being with what's happening. And this is where meditation practice becomes a training for life, is that we're training in a way of being. To be fully here, to not be hung up on time or ourselves, to not be too goal-oriented, to be spontaneous and creative, and to have some resource in how we meet things.
So may your meditation practice be an adventure in play. I offer this for your reflection. So we have about um, 10 or 15 minutes uh, if there's some questions about uh, the practice. Yeah, please. You remember when you began meditating. And it was fun. And then um, more recently, I, I became ill, and, uh, and now it's, it's more of a, um, it's more effort. Uh-huh. It's not fun uh-huh. as much. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, every once in a while. So I'm wondering how to get back to that. Yeah. With with where I am in my body right now. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, sickness isn't fun. And aging bodies aren't fun. Um, so our practice changes as the body energy goes down, mm-hmm. as the vitality goes down, um, as the frequency and intensity of unpleasant sensations increases. Uh, so it's a different kind of effort and a different kind of energy that's needed. So a lot of your um, focus and exploration can be on your relationship with what's happening in your body and in your mind, the ideas about the future, or the perceptions of yourself, how the sense of identity changes based on what you can or can't do anymore, the identity of being a healthy person as that disintegrates, right? So to notice the mind's relationship with those things, is there fear, is there resistance, is there anger, is there resentment, is there despair, right? All of these ways that the mind starts reacting to what's happening, and to then bring the sense of curiosity to that place, because that's where the freedom is. The, the body's going to go. That's beyond our control, right? But can we learn to um, observe the changing nature of the elements of the body with a sense of calm and dispassion, and uh, tenderness. So there's a certain kind of letting go that needs to happen around the idea of what meditation looks like, even sitting up or even following the breath, and instead starting to work with the mind's relationship with what's happening and really paying attention to um, your, uh, your view, your idea about what's happening. So uh, if you haven't explored right view at all in the teachings to really start to look into the wisdom aspect of recognizing the nature of things, that they're just made up of different elements and following their nature. They're just doing what they're supposed to, and it's not, it's not me, it's not you, it's not right, it's not wrong. Yeah, I hope that's helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, this, is, this woman... What's the difference between goal setting and aspiration? Thank you. Great question. What's the difference between goal setting and aspiration? It's um, 
uh, well, the distinction I would make is between expectation and aspiration. So aspiration is like, you know, you want to go in a certain direction, right? And that's important. It's important to know what direction we want to go in. And meditation has a very clear direction. We're going towards clarity, towards kindness, towards patience, towards um, compassion, non-harming. There's a very clear directionality to the path. But it... but where it becomes unhelpful is when we start grasping at the goal, when it becomes expectation. And you'll feel it because there's agitation and frustration. Um, So two things came to mind to me during the talk. So this is more an observation than a question, because I have a background in nonviolent communication as well. And there's the concept of giving from the heart and how we often undertake things, and usually this is in relationship, obviously, with other people, where we do something and it's an act of generosity. Mm-hmm. And then something shifts and it becomes an expectation. And suddenly we're not giving from the heart, we're giving because we're expected to uh, the, the words should arises, we should be doing it, we, you know, and I, I think that's so very true in regards to ourselves. We meditate because it's a gift to ourselves, mm-hmm. and suddenly mm-hmm. it becomes this obligation. And mm-hmm. so that's what I was hearing mm-hmm. also in your talk yeah. and, and hearing your NBC background mm-hmm. kind of influencing that. And Thank the you. Other, the other was... The great adage of Suzuki Roshi, beginner, Zen mind, beginner's mind. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the beginner's mind is the mind of a child. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to truly practice, we have to retain that open mind. Mm-hmm. And to, to connect with that is to connect to play, yeah. like you're talking about. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, maybe this woman over here at the glasses. We'll get you next. Go ahead, please. Um, I'm not sure if this is a question or not, but when I uh, thank you for your your talk, it's given me a lot to reflect on. But but for me, with my experience and practice, it there seems to be sort of an inherent paradox in that what what brought me to practice was not that it was fun or playful or anything. It was like I was trying to save my life. I mean, I was in so much suffering. And so there was sort of an inherent goal-driven, you know, I mean... Yeah, get free from suffering. Yeah, I mean, my practice, I I don't think I experienced much of any, like, real ease or pleasantness in my practice until maybe, like, the last couple years, and I've been practicing for a really long time. So, so... um, I don't know. So maybe you could just. Well, yeah. I mean, that's 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 why I started the talk by kind of framing things as saying, you know, um, there's a lot to be serious about. Yeah. And there is. And the whole point of meditation practice is to stop suffering, and suffering is serious. It sucks. You know, and whether it's just kind of like, you know, one's own neuroses and kind of petty sort of, or like, getting sick 
or addiction or loss or, you know, there's real difficult things and there's real urgency to our practice. That's, it's, it's both. It's not one or the other. Very serious joke. Very serious joke. Hi. So I will preface this question by saying it's possible that it's motivated by the undisciplined part of myself that does not really want to, you know, commit and and have a routine practice. But I am hopeful that the earnest part of me that does want to, um, you know, really progress along my spiritual path is asking the question so as to have you debunk um <laughs> the other sort of the other motivator okay. in asking this that the, maybe the they're part bo- of me maybe that, they're both asking the question that can yes i think i think so um so i think um that at time i know you're not supposed to have a goal but i think that there are times where i think of meditation as being sort of um a means to having me be present mm-hmm. all the time and that to be sort of my, you know, my end game is to, to be off the cushion as I am on the cushion. Mm-hmm. And so th- then there's that part of me that says, well, isn't there a point where maybe meditation can render itself obsolete? And so I'm just mm-hmm. wonderfully present all the time and, mm-hmm. and I don't even need to be on the cushion. And as I said, I recognize that this is, you know, the part of me that recognizes the crafty machinations that I set up to, like, get out of doing stuff uh, is is likely behind that thought. Uh-huh. <laughs> but um, I would just like to have, you know, a teacher uh-huh. tell me that. <laughs> Maybe. Uh-huh. I don't know. Yeah, okay. yeah keep, keep sitting. <laughs> I said, keep sitting. Yeah. Even great, even great masters who are present—I don't know if they're present all the time, but most of the time—sit. It's useful. So, um, I read a book about improvisational play, and a lot of what oh. you said resonated with what I read. Oh. And I read this book like years ago. Yeah. So, thank you for you know, making that analogy and bringing it up because it just Uh reminded me that that is something that I need to kind of keep in mind. Um, And I have a fairly regular meditation practice and I uh, do it for about 10 minutes in the morning. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. when you talk about um, play as being timeless, like, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but having to kind of fit meditation in Mm -hmm. or um, into our daily lives, like how would you practically implement that while not making it kind of like this timed thing or this there's no such thing as 10 minutes (laughs) (laughs) when you sit just sit 10 minutes is an eternity thank you you're welcome so we're at the end of our time (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I want to just say a couple of things. Um, um, I brought a few, uh, just a few materials. Uh, there's a, a one of the many clipboards on the back table, but the one that has my name on it is a, for an email list. I send out one email uh, a month, roughly, um, just with news about teaching and uh, writing and um, links to free 
free events or free online stuff uh, of my teaching. Uh, so if you want to stay in touch or hear about what I'm doing, um, print your email address clearly, and then you'll get on my email list. If it's not clear, it's a hit or miss whether you'll end up there. Um, and then I brought some of these cards, which are for an online program that I run called Next Step Dharma, which is about integrating meditation practice into your daily life. And it's a six-week program, and we have live question and answer sessions about every week and a half. Uh, it's it's framed around coming off of a meditation retreat. Um, so anyone who's done a meditation retreat might be particularly interested in it. But even if you haven't done a meditation retreat, um, it's a great program to bring the practice into your life, and it might inspire you to do a meditation retreat. So if you're interested in that, feel free to pick up one of these flyers. So let's just sit together for a timeless moment. This moment is completely unscripted and unknown. Let yourself play. May the goodness and the benefit of our time together and our practice be for the welfare, the happiness, the peace, and the safety of all sentient beings. Okay, thanks so much for your practice. I forgot to mention I'm teaching a nonviolent communication retreat in Berkeley in August that integrates uh, communication and mindfulness. So it's a six-day retreat. So if you're interested, just go to my website. There's information there. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.